it just shows you how much learning loss is BS, right? Because you, yeah. you could stop in March of one year, teach nothing new, and then start the next school year and be just fine, right? Yeah. And as long as you don't have that test that's forcing you to make sure that students retain this or this or that, right? And so I think it just really goes to show learning loss is made up by, by corporations and people who want to profit off of the deficit view of black and brown children. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Hello, everybody. Welcome, welcome um, to our discussion on the racist history of standardized testing. My name is Awo Okaikor Ayi Price. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And I am on the occupied territory of the Lenape Lenape people, currently referred to as the state of New Jersey. Um, I'm a former classroom teacher and one of the founding steering committee members of Black Lives Matter at school and a co-founder of MEPSO Freedom School. And I'll be moderating this conversation tonight. Um, this is a conversation that we have been hearing bubbling up all over and all over again as we, you know, near testing season, seasoning season. Um, and we're there, we're at testing season, right? And or it's been expanded beyond um, April and May. We're starting to see now states are actually looking at having their tests in, in the fall because they weren't able to do it in the in the in the spring. But thanks to Haymarket Books and our co-sponsors, um, Black Lives Matter at School and the New Jersey Education Association um, for making this conversation possible. Um, so I kind of want to just begin by lifting up the importance of this conversation, particularly at this moment, um, in the midst of a global pandemic where many schools, districts, students, and teachers are returning back to school. Many of our schools are have seen um, this as an opportunity to move forward with administering um, standardized man mandated tests at a time when folks are experiencing collective and personal loss and grief. When we think about grief, we think about grief on the multiple levels that people are experiencing grief. Um, but we cannot separate this impulse to move toward testing our students during this pandemic, during this time, this, these multiple pandemics. We cannot separate it out from the history, the racist history of standardized testing in our country and beyond. Um, if we understand the racist history of standardized tests and their role in building, um, you know this nation and its and its and its schools and its education system. Then maybe we can be more intentional about how we demand what we demand in our states. Um, some of, some folks are pushing for it now, while others are given waivers or administering the tests in the fall. But I want us to take some time to discuss this history. How has it impacted the life and experiences of people, our education system, our learning environments, our communities, our current narratives around lifting up? You know what this current narrative that we're hearing being lifted up around learning loss. Um, and then what alternatives must we, be, must we hold up, right? What alternatives should we be looking for? So I'm gonna take this time to introduce our panelists who will be having these conversations with us so we can talk about that, um, all that we just, I just kind of laid out, right? 
So we'll be um, joined by Denisha Jones, who is a member of the National Black Lives Matter at School Steering Committee. Um, she is also the director of the Art of Teaching at the graduate school um, the graduate school program at Sarah Lawrence College, and she is the co-editor of Black Lives Matter at School book. Um, and then we'll also be joined by Jesse Agopian, who is a member of the National Black Lives Matter at School Steering Committee and who teaches ethnic studies at Seattle Scarfield High School. He is the co-editor of Black Lives Matter at School and Uprising for Educational Justice and editor of Rethinking Schools Mag Magazine, editor of More Than a Score and co-editor of Teaching for Black Lives. And last but certainly not least, Wayne Al, who is a professor of the School of Educational Studies at the University of Washington, Bothell. Bothell. He is a longtime Rethinking Schools editor, co-editor of Teaching for Black Lives, and author of the uh, Marxist Education, a Learning Learning to Change the World. Um, and so we're going to start this conversation. I, and I want us to start with, um, let's start with the history. Let's start, with, let's start with the racist history of standardized testing, right? When we think about eugenics, even that, that word, the definition of that word, eugenics, which means, was it, good genes. Um, and the history around why standardized tests were used and how it's its impact on us now today. So, Wayne, would you like to kick us off? Right on. Thank you so much, Okaiko. It's really good to see you. And Denisha, I don't see you two enough. Um, at least Jesse and I get to hang because we're in the same city, but I, I feel like I don't, I don't get to spend time with y'all. Um, yeah, so I'm going to spend the next few minutes sort of just going through some of the early history of standardized testing in the United States in particular and sort of highlighting um, the 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 ways it's really strongly connected to race and racism and fundamentally white white supremacy. Um, if you go back to sort of really the origins of 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 our standardized tests, they really begin with what's called IQ testing, right? We're all pretty familiar with that, and and IQ actually literally stands for intelligence quotient, um, where basically um, Alfred Binet, who was a French science a French psychologist, uh, was trying to actually create a um, create an assessment of young, very young children to see if uh, they if, to, to see if they had any um, uh, developmental uh, disabilities or any developmental issues. And it was literally you take this test and you divide the score by by the age. And that's how you get an intelligence quotient, literally the division of that. But anyways, you know, um, Binet was doing this very much just for these little kids, but these there, there's a bunch of a uh, crew of of U.S. American uh, white American men uh, who are psychologists who brought these this uh, Binet's assessment over and then made their own version. And they they wanted they like strongly believed in a very sort of biologically based, very fixed notion of IQ. Um, and these were folks like uh, Lewis Terman, Henry Goddard and, and Robert Yerkes or the few of the names. And they, um, in 1917, they 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 created these uh, uh, alpha these army tests, alpha and beta tests, and they actually um, gave them to um, a huge pool of over a million recruits for World War One. And then they thought, you know, they, they thought they were scientists. They thought that they uh, were, were, were coming up with a quote unquote objective results free of bias. Um, and according to their quote unquote objective findings uh, from these tests that they gave to these army recruits, um, they found that darker Europeans 
and, and, and blacks and native folks and immigrants and the poor were essentially all less intelligent than lighter Europeans and, and white folks born in the U.S. and the rich, right? Um, uh, sort, of, sort of magically, this is how it happened. This is, this is uh, how, what the results uh, turned out to be. During the same time period, um, there was a really strong um, uh, eugenics movement in the U.S., right? This idea that that intelligence and also behavioral traits could be tied, be, be tied to our genes, that the way it was biologically determined. And so the results of these tests end up really fe- became fuel to the eugenics fire in the U.S. because then people started seeing and using the test scores to kind of be like, oh, OK, well, then these folks, they shouldn't be breeding. Right. They're they're, they're dumber than than the rich folks and the white folks. Right. It's it, it, it becomes like um, uh, it, it gives like evidence to support support their claims. I think and then um, I think a lot of folks don't get they think, oh, IQ, IQ tests and eugenics and all that stuff. That's sort of way back. That's over 100 years ago at this point. It has nothing to do with now. But what I think folks don't get is actually, you know, uh, um, these same tests were the ones that were adopted and brought directly into the public school system during that time. Yeah. So if you take um, uh, Lewis Terman, who is a professor at Stanford, he basically adapted um, uh, IQ testing for public schools, and it became the Stanford Binet Intelligent Test. Some folks are familiar with that that terminology. Um, and he came up with four categories of what these tests showed us in terms of intelligence. Um, uh, that that humans could be could be sorted into either being quote unquote feeble minded, quote unquote dull, quote unquote average, or quote unquote superior. Um, and the other hard part folks have troubles with sort of uh, reconciling around this history is just that uh, this is the basis of tracking as well, yeah. right? So not only do we have the origins of, of standardized, high-stakes standardized testing in this really sort of racist and classist uh, form of assessment, but but um, uh, that became the whole idea of like who's going to go to college and who's going to go into the trades, and yeah. and and then that got that got used as a weapon uh, uh, in the racialization, uh, particularly of, of blacks and Latinx folks uh, in 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 this country. Um, and the same person, so Lewis Terman. Couple couple things. He he actually believed that that certain races inherited quote unquote deficient IQs, and he thought that no amount of school instruction will ever make them intelligent voters or capable citizens. He also believed that that feeble mindedness, that's his word, was quote unquote very very common among Spanish Indians and Mexican families of the Southwest, and also amongst Black folks. He used the word Negroes. Mm-hmm. Um, he also believed that quote unquote children of this group should be segregated into special classes and be given instruction that's practical. And that they cannot be that, quote unquote, they cannot master abstractions, but they can be made into efficient workers. Right. Mm. And so and so these tests really moved into the public school system, took public schools by storm, because if you think about it, this is also the time when we first started seeing the really rapid growth of mass schooling in the United States. It also sort of coincides with the fact that children weren't allowed to work in factories anymore and they had to figure out some place to put all these kids. Um, and uh, and and so folks were looking for an efficient way to sort these this ma- these masses of, of of children coming into schools, and and so districts started started purchasing and using these assessments like wholesale uh, for for tracking and pre-testing and all sorts of stuff uh, for the students in, in their in, in their schools. And again, folks might say, "Well, that's a hundred years ago. That's not now." And and the 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 main thing I would point to around that is also to say that you know there's a presumption in it built into the test that we that we use now that the psychometricians, the folks who build the tests, 
really do believe in a bell curve of intelligence. They believe that that intelligence is distributed unevenly across human populations and that a quote unquote good or valid assessment will produce results that follow that bell curve saying, oh, there's a bunch, there's a small group of people here at the high end and a bunch of people in the middle mm-hmm. and a bunch of people. And then a group of people here at the, at the low end. And, and really, I would say that's still the logics of eugenics, right? Mm-hmm. Built right into these presumptions around the tests. And the final point I'll make is that in terms of, and this is something I know Jesse and, and Denisha are going to pick up on, um, just that the just empirically, if we look at those results from 100 years ago and their quote unquote objective findings about poor folks and folks of color and immigrants being less intelligent, according to their measures, um, uh, if we can just go, oh, OK, let's look at the how folks frame um the achievement gap now, right? And and I challenge the notion of achievement gap, but but that's the language that gets used. And and really, if we look at the results, the results we have now essentially parallel the results we had 100 years ago uh, from those tests. We still see poor folks and folks of color um, and lots of immigrant groups doing more poorly on these tests uh, than 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 white folks and, and affluent folks. Um, and I think that's kind of indisputable. So I'll stop there. I know there's a lot more discussion to be had, and then we'll pass the mic. Thank you. It's like we built in an algorithm, like we built in a, a coding into our education system and it's spitting out. <laughs> the output is still the same from when we started back that time period, during that time period when we first started designing standardized tests um, and what it is now. And it's still doing exactly what it was designed to do. Right. Yes. Um, Jesse, yes. So I want you to take us into like let's thinking about like what are some of these barriers around high stakes testing today um, around equity? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's exactly what what you said, Okaikor, um, that when you know the origins and the roots of high stakes standardized testing, then the outcomes today shouldn't surprise us. Right. And I think that the purpose of high stakes standardized testing has always been about ranking and sorting, right? It's always been about making sure that people know their place because I think that white supremacy and racial capitalism in this country has maintained itself through a few different uh, strategies, right? One of those strategies we see when people get together and protest, well, they bring out huge numbers of of police and National Guard to smash resistance, right? But they would rather have a society where people know their place, right? Quote, unquote, where people accept the logic of inequality, where you're trained from a very young age to know that if you don't get a high paying job, that's because you had a lower intelligence. Right. And so there's all these systems in place. Right. Standardized testing being, I think, one of the most effective tools that they've had to train the each generation to accept their place in in society. And so I knew from the from third grade that I wasn't intelligent when I first saw my first standardized test score. It was, I remember it vividly. I, I was at a parent teacher conference. My mom and my third grade teacher were out in the hallway um, in a little kid chairs sitting around a desk and the teacher pulled out the, I think it was the cat test, the California mm-hmm. achievement test. And there was like a, 
a blue line that ran through the middle that showed the average score. And then there was my dot that was way down below. And so I knew from that time until just about uh, halfway through college that I wasn't intelligent and I had the scores to prove it to you. Right. And, you know, I came to reject a lot of the logic of this system that trains people to, uh, you know, self hate and, and accept the inequality, but I didn't really fully grasp how, intentional this process was until I read Wayne Al's book that I think everybody needs to, to read um, Unequal by Design. <laughs> and that, that book was revelatory for me, right? To understand that I'd been set up as a black student in this country to believe that I wasn't intelligent and um, that that setup has a long history based in eugenics really changed the way I saw myself and my dedication to the struggle. So thank you, Wayne, for your, for your scholarship and, and commitment to this work. Um, I, I greatly appreciate it on many levels and, and given that, um, you know, it shouldn't surprise us that black folks have been at the forefront of fighting against standardized testing for decades, including in this panel today. But but people should know that W.E.B. Du Bois was a leading uh, public intellectual who fought against the use of these tests to rank and sort the races and and um, Horace Mann Bond. Right did really important work. Uh, and he wrote an essay called Intelligence Tests and Propaganda in 1924, um, where he basically laid out what we call today the zip code effect, right? Mm -hmm. that, that what these tests measure is not your intelligence, not even your learning, but what they measure is your access to resources. And so what they measure above all else what, what standardized test scores today most closely correlate with is your zip code. Yeah. Because they, they tell you what neighborhood you live in and the wealth in that neighborhood and the proximity to whiteness, right? And so, you know, today these tests are playing a similar role that they've played throughout history, only in some ways – even worse because they've exploded into the public schools, right? When I was a kid, we had the cat test in elementary school, and then we had another in middle school, and then we might have had a couple in, in high school, and, and then the SAT, right? Um, but today, the average American public school student takes an astonishing 112 standardized tests, 112 standardized tests. What that means is that every month students are getting ready for another high stakes standardized test. And what that means is that it's not just being used to rank and sort anymore. It is driving all of the curriculum because if educators and students are being judged based on this test score, then the, the teachers increasingly are bending the curriculum 
to how to achieve on a standardized test. And what we know about these tests are that they're really good at telling us who can eliminate wrong answer choices at faster rates than others and who is closer to the white dominant culture who the tests were written for, but they're not so good at telling us who can critically think. And so when we're when we're bending the curriculum to what's on a standardized test that was created by a corporation that doesn't know the kids that that I teach, uh, it's highly detrimental. And I also think folks should know that um, schools that serve BIPOC students have the highest concentrations of these tests, right? So that, uh, you know, (laughs) private schools that serve the elite, they don't waste their time with these tests, right? Uh, You know, schools like Lakeside where Bill Gates sends his kids, right? I mean, he's invested a fortune into the quote unquote accountability movement to inundate the public schools with high stakes standardized testing so that black and brown children can be tested and punished. But for his own kids, he wants them to go to a school where there is (laughs) arts and music and plenty of time for reflection and critical thinking. And, and the, you know, you might have to take the SAT, but, but that's about it. (laughs) Right. And so I, I just think that it's so important that we understand the way these tests are being weaponized against black and brown youth uh, disproportionately uh, to in, in our schools today, and that that shouldn't surprise us given, given the history. And I, I guess I just want to end by, by making one last point, mm-hmm. that I think that, um, you know, the central contradiction of standardized testing is that knowledge is fundamentally a social phenomenon. The way we come to understand ourselves in the world is about being in relationship with other people. Mm-hmm. But standardized testing is fundamentally an isolated individual act. Right. And it tells us nothing about what students can do in collaboration with others, which should be the whole purpose of education. Right. Figuring out how you can interact with others. And the great psychologist Lev Vygotsky talked about a uh, zone of proximal development of, of finding out what a student can do with help from peers and and mentors. Right. And 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 thinking about how do we measure that as a more important uh, skill. And standardized tests tell us nothing about what you can do in collaboration with others. And I think that when we shift that as our goal, then we have to look to other kinds of assessments. And and we also have to understand that that black and brown youth often are very good at collaborating to Mm -hmm. solve and that that isn't measured by by these tests. So, I see. You know what you said, kind of. Um, it reminded me. It was something you said about you know, there black folks have been fighting for and fighting against and pushing back against standardized tests. And it reminded me of that quote 
um, that W.E. Du Bois I kind of came across a while ago where it says it was not until a long, I was long out of school. And indeed, after the first world war, that there came the hurried use of the new technique of psychological tests, which are quickly adjusted so as to put back put black folks absolutely beyond the possibility of civilization, which speaks to like I often call this like the opportunity apartheid, right? There was a, a, a manufactured and structurally put into place where we were not able to access opportunity. Right. And that was structured into the assessment so that we would it would follow us no matter where in our jobs and our ability to earn income, our ability, our ability to buy houses in certain areas, because that standardized test also kind of construct, you know, the wealth of people's mm-hmm. homes, too, as well. Like we're seeing how real estate agencies are using it. Um, say, look, our school district is. You know, not top nine, it's a nine school district and the standardized test scores are at this percent and then health prices are really high. Right. Which are used to, you know, further segregate our communities. Right. Um, but that point about pushing us further um, beyond the possibility of civilization has always like stuck with me um, in terms of how the tests have been used. Yes. Um, so, Denisha, I want us to think about like. Can you talk a little bit about the impact on curriculum and instruction too, as well, um, as a as a former classroom teacher, as a now someone who helps prepare classroom teachers too, as well. Yeah, absolutely, and thank you guys for all of this great conversation. Um, and I, you know, I'm also watching the chat, which I can't help but do. So I know at some point people are talking about right, like standardized testing outside of K through 12. So I think when we get into the larger discussion, we can add that. But I just wanted to mention that. But um, it is really important to think about how it's impacting curriculum and instruction. You know. When Biden was running for president, you know, we had the public education forum in December 2019. I got to ask him a question about standardized testing. And I really drew out this long question because I wanted him to see like the impact. Right. Like I started with early childhood and then the impact on teachers. And then because my friend Jeff Kennedy would not forgive me if I didn't mention the word eugenics. Right. I threw that in there, too. So it was a very long, detailed question to which he quickly said yes. When I said, will you end the use of standardized testing? And this was before the pandemic. And I felt like the pandemic was the gift he was looking for if he really wanted to end standardized testing. And we did. Let's not forget, we went one whole year with no standardized testing. Mm. And this is why I think we saw it come back this year, because every test company knows two years without data and it's a wrap. Right. (laughs) And they were very afraid of that. Right. So they kind of we're not going to make it count, but you need to take it. Right. And kids are showing up and going to school and risking catching COVID or spreading COVID to take a standardized test, which is very problematic. Some states we know got waivers to put them off till till fall, right? But they're not done with altogether. Um, And so first starting with how the use of standardized testing, well, there's two things I think want to go back to. I had a very similar experience to Jesse in the sense that I took that CAT test. I didn't do bad on that test, right? And I was a good student. So, but I remember asking my teacher, like, are we being graded on this? And she's like, just try your best. And so there was like zero pressure, right? So I just spent the day answering these questions. And then she told me I was always in the middle. She'd like, just tell your mom you're doing as well as everybody else. I was like, okay, fine. So it wasn't a big deal. And I think that's the reason why they they became high stakes, right? No one was taking them seriously. There was no pressure on teachers and students, right? And all of a sudden, the people who benefit from so 112 standardized tests in the students K through 12 year, they wanted to up the stakes, right? They wanted 
wanted to bring the pressure on those tests. So when we talk about high stakes, right, this idea that one test can determine whether you graduate high school. It's going down, but still a handful of states have that graduation requirement, right, for, for graduation. Mm-hmm. Some states have a third grade promotion requirement. If your test scores aren't good in third grade, you're not getting promoted to fourth grade, right? I know they were battling that in Florida in the courts because a bunch of parents opted out. So then what does that mean for the opt-out movement, right? So yeah. there's this high-stake nature that's affecting both teach students and teachers, right? That's really important. So because of all this pressure, the first thing it's going to do is narrow the curriculum, right? <laughs> Forget all the stuff that's not being tested because who has time, right? The tests really focus on key academic subjects like math and, and literacy and language arts, but not even real math and language and literacy arts, only what yeah. could be measured, right? We have to remember that standardized testing is a tool of efficiency. And there's been this business model in education to make it very efficient, right? And to construct schools that are standardized and efficient. And so you use testing because it's easier, right? Like when I'm sure Jesse's going to talk about alternatives, right? The alternatives to standardized testing are great, but they're not efficient. They take time. They take resources. You got to bring people, but they're great because students really get to show who they are. And that's so important. Um, So we narrow the curriculum to focus on what's being tested, right? And then you're even emphasizing just discrete bits of knowledge. You know, there was a lot of learning loss that happened. The students lost all the ridiculous knowledge they were memorizing for standardized tests because there's not there's no use in the real world for that. I always like to say people think education, the goal is like to be on a game show. Are you smarter than a fifth grader? Yeah. Because that's all we want to do is fill you with that kind of like knowledge. It's not even Jeopardy knowledge, right? It's just basic. Can you recall facts at a really quick pace? And it's not doing anything more. So it's turning knowledge into just, just discrete bits of information. And so then the pressure became on the teachers, right? No Child Left Behind ramped up the pressure like we never saw because it was a federal overreach. Of course, we never saw before. The federal government never dared input policy that then mandated, testing mandated third third grade through, through senior year. That's a lot. Like we were never having that much kind of testing. And then the adequate yearly progress, right? The evaluating the schools on the testing also put the pressure on. And we see what happens when you're put pressure on for tests, right? We see cheating scandals across the country, right? But then Black educators are doubly disadvantaged, right? Because yeah. the pressure they feel leads to arrest for um, ridiculousness that happened in Atlanta, right? To those yeah. teachers still waiting, right? And so that's crazy because there was a cheating scandal in D.C., there's cheating scandals in Philadelphia, there's cheating scandals everywhere. But only the Black educators in Atlanta saw themselves arrested and tried under a law that's really to prevent, like, um, organized crime, right? And so that was very, that was very interesting to see how that played out. And unfortunate, there are teachers still waiting to see if they're going to spend time in prison over a scandal that really had nothing to do with them, right? They were doing, they were teachers, right? Doing their job and everyone else was putting all this pressure on the testing, right? And then um, the push down of the academics, this is what people really don't get in the early childhood years. Everyone's like, well, my kid doesn't take the test till third grade. They're five. Why should I worry about it? Oh, because as I was a kindergarten teacher in DC public schools, I was explicitly told you need to teach them how to bubble. And I said, excuse me. And they're like the bubble they need to practice because in first grade, they take a practice test and the kids don't know how to bubble and the scranton doesn't work. So you need to take time away from your precious time with your five-year-olds who need to like feel good about themselves and learn how to get along and learn how to feel confident in their abilities to practice bubbling, right? So it really does happen in the young, it impacts the younger years and what happens, right? And then what happens is the schools start sorting kids early into, okay, you're definitely going to do well on the test. You're not even going to come close to doing well in the test. 
And then they zero in on the students who they think they can push up in test scores. So it really disadvantages both students at either end of the spectrum, because if you're definitely going to do good, they're not wasting any time on you. If they, you're definitely not going to do good, they're not wasting any time on you. But it's just those in the middle that they believe they can push up, right? Because they just want to move the score to get a certain amount of number of students passing, right? A certain amount of students out of that low end of the bell curve that Wayne uh, mentioned earlier, right? And then all of this still leads to more accountability because then by the, the weirdest logic ever, because every psychometrician who put these tests said you don't use it this way, we get value-added measures, right? We get people who say, you can look at a teacher, you can look at a test scores of a class of students and determine whether that teacher did a good job. It makes absolutely no sense. And every psychometrician that I know who works on standardized testing and believes in it will say value-added measures is not what these tests are designed for. You cannot evaluate a teacher based on test scores. There's too many other factors that contribute to that test score. But yet here we have it in many states, teachers losing their job, teachers being um, names printed in the paper as failing to, to, do, um, to educate their students well based on test scores, teachers leaving school districts because the test scores are part of their evaluation. And because they can't raise test scores, they can't get a raise in pay. So they go somewhere else, right? Mm -hmm. And where they're going, they're going to districts that have better test scores, right? So they're abandoning the, the school districts that have the low-income students, the black and brown students who are already disadvantaged by these tests to go to other school districts and teach where it's easier because all the students are doing well, right? So we're even showing more, more harm in that way as well too. And then, and a lot of people were talking about this as well, you know, it's not just, it is the K through 12 and the SAT and the ACT are part of this. And many colleges are going test optional, but a lot of high schools have made deals with the college board where they tell students, oh, no, 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 you have to take the SAT and we're not charging you for it. And I'm like, you don't actually have to take anything, but that's the kind of language that they're using. I hear this about this a lot and United Opt Out. And I found out when I was doing another presentation on this in, um, in, in uh, Michigan, and they were like, no, 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 they make every high school senior take the test because they have a deal with college board to take the SAT, right? And so it, it just becomes more profit for the corporations and more pain and harm for the students. I mean, when I taught freshmen at another college and a writing class about standardized testing and about opt out, and I asked them to talk about their last standardized test, and so many of them, the SAT and the ACT, and all they talked about was the pressure, the way it, like, they were getting sick the day before, like how horrible it made them feel socially and emotionally emotionally to have to take this test. And they didn't know that they could not take it, right? But they didn't think that some schools, like I'm at a college right now, that's test optional. Um, and even graduate schools, right? It's really interesting in New York State, we mandate every student has to take an exam for grad school. But at my college, I don't have to review your scores. You need to submit scores to get in, but I don't have to make a decision on them, right? So people are asking, like, how do we pull back out on this? Any test that is a sole determining factor of whether somebody gets a diploma or gets promoted to the next grade or gets any type of, you know, stick, right, that needs to go away. You know, there shouldn't be one measure of who you are as a person, right? If we have to have some type of testing, could it just be a, a composite, a component of like your overall evaluation and not this one bar, right? I think that's something to think about as well, too. Um, because, you know, there are ways to prepare for tests when you need to, right? We've all had to study for a test that we may need to take a test for something else and, and test prep works. But what we're seeing in K through 12, right, is that test prep becomes the curriculum. 
You know, I went to law school part-time for four years and I didn't spend four years studying for the bar. I spent four years learning to think like an attorney. And at the end of each semester, they gave us some bar questions so we could practice. But I took 10 weeks after I graduated and I studied nothing but the bar, right? That's the kind of prep. But I couldn't imagine spending four years <laughs> doing bar prep. Like that's not what you go to school for, but we're doing that to students every day in K through 12. We're telling them that their entire curriculum is spent preparing for a test. And that there's nothing else to really do other than that. Right. And so we're narrowing so much of what they're supposed to be able to do um, and what they want to do. And I think that's we've seen a lot of students hate school. I would hate school, too. When I went to school, there was no pressure on these tests. And I loved it. I went every day and I thought it was a great place to be. But I could only imagine. Right. Like if I was like Jesse and feeling like these tests said I was not smart and there was all these pressure. Right. Like how many students are walking away from school because of these standardized testing or being denied. Right. Their diploma because of these standardized testing. So that's just a few of the ways, um, but it's definitely having this impact and we need to do all we can to kind of push back. Yeah. Again, pushing further us further away from our civilization, right? Going back to Du Bois um, and, and this opportunity apartheid. And so you spoke about learning loss. I'm going to put it in quotes because <laughs> that I think is it's new language that's being constructed and I, I don't know where it originated from, but it's definitely trying to shift our socialization into thinking that children have lost something, right? Um, I like the way, so I've been looking at some of the work that Oregon has been doing, and they're using language like unfinished learning, right? That's the that's the language that they're using. I'll even say because it's not unfinished learning, right? Because there's still learning happening, like when they're home. There's learning happening in some kind of way. So it's unfinished, maybe academic learning, right? School learning. Um, But I want to hear a little bit more about how we see that narrative, this language, constructing how schools and districts and educators are moving in this moment in time. And this is for anybody to... mm -hmm. Yeah, I'll I'll jump in. Um, this narrative of learning loss is part of a larger family of deficit model thinking when it comes to our students in general, and definitely the way it's weaponized against Black students, right? And so, I think that learning loss narrative. Uh, first was kind of developed around what students lose over the summer for people who are promoting year-round education as the silver bullet to to the public schools. And, you know, that there's been research that has refuted a lot of that um, learning loss narrative over the summer. And it also doesn't take into account all the things that they do learn over the summer when they're not in school and the critical social and emotional development that goes on when youth are having unstructured play and dialogue with each other and come into conflict and resolve those conflicts and all the things that you learn. Um, but but it, it reminds me very much of the achievement gap uh, language that's always putting black kids at the losing end of this gap and saying that they're perpetually behind white students. 
And, you know, they rolled this out in such a strong way this year because they needed a narrative to convince people that we could jumpstart standardized testing this spring because the profits of the standardized testing companies were in jeopardy and because the whole logic of the system requires that we rank and sort children and give them a value uh, in order to maintain a society as unequal as ours and convince people to accept their place in this society, right? And so there's so much pressure, but how do you convince people to accept the standardized testing at a time of a global pandemic when it makes absolutely no sense? Um, Because we know, as Wayne has written about, uh, if you're gonna have standardized testing, then you need standardized conditions, right? to administer these tests. And we know the conditions our youth have been in are, are nothing, uh, not even close to standard, that we there are all these varied um, circumstances that our youth are learning in this year, right? Some of them are homeless and have been trying to figure out how to find a hotspot to, to learn in this year, right? And so the, if, the, the stan- if the conditions aren't standardized, then, then the outcomes are even more illegitimate on those tests. But I want to point to something that Kianga Yamada-Taylor pointed out about this learning loss narrative that I think really puts it into historical context and helps us understand how it feeds a racist narrative. Because uh, Kianga wrote in an article for The New Yorker, quote, the dystopian image of a, quote, lost generation of black youth youth is redolent of earlier moral panics. The discoveries of, quote, crack babies in the 1980s and the, quote, super predators in the 90s were also rooted in anecdote-driven pseudoscientific evidence. Today's evidence for the spiral of black children is the tactically vague measurement of, quote, learning loss, But no one needs to invent a new metric to discover that during the worst crisis in modern American history, students might be falling behind. It stands to reason that those students who were already victims of the maldistribution of wealth and resources that mars the entire enterprise of public education in the United States would fall behind even more as those inequalities are mapped onto new stresses created by the pandemic. And and just to, to say that the idea that we need these standardized tests to, to measure how far youth have fallen behind right now is the same kind of logic that underpins the idea that if you were to rescue a child who fell overboard in the Arctic Circle and you pull them back aboard the ship, your your first instinct would be to take their temperature and then to take it again and again, how about 112 times, right? But in fact, we know what that child needs is to be wrapped in a towel, right? And then to be wrapped in a blanket, the same way we need to wrap our youth in wraparound services. We, our youth have been suffering that there, there is a loss that's occurred. There's a loss of community. There's a loss of stability. Um, and they need trauma counseling, nurses, right, and all these services, but not more standardized testing. 
Yeah. And this kind of goes into this next question that actually I, I wasn't meaning to bring in the our audience questions, but I think it ties right into this because um, Phil Hines talks about, um, he says here, the question for him then now or them is that why are social justice organizations such as the Urban League, for example, have they gone on record um, with this accountability model, right? Saying that we need to do standardized tests to measure this learning loss. Why are some of these organizations doing this? Um, it's a question that they have. I mean, I, I definitely have an answer for it. It could give me trouble. What I would say is I think we need to question what counts as a social justice organization as part of this too, right? Mm -hmm. Just because a lot of these these orgs um, I would call them like they're they're liberal and they have a certain model of racial justice and and for them, you know, um, success and and holding schools accountable gets wrapped around these ideas of testing. Um, mm -hmm. I would actually argue in a big picture cultural politics sense, really, it's I think if we make the tests be our um, our guide for success, I think that's a, I think that's actually a politics of respectability that's being played mm -hmm. out in terms of proving ourselves to white folks and everyone else. Yes. that that uh, we, we can do with what they do, right? Um, I think that's a piece of it. Uh, I also wanna also highlight though that there's national organizations and then there's locals. And I know there's splits between national national organizations and local chapters. Um, you know, I know NAACP National has been really supporting as one of the main sort of mainstream civil rights groups supporting, um, you know, having testing and accountability. Um, but I also know that, you know, our, our local folks here in Washington State and in King County in particular of NAACP have been, um, you know, critical of the testing and been supportive of, of you know, the, the test resistance, for instance, that Jesse has helped organize uh, regionally as well, right? And so we see that kind of tension. And part of it is also really wrapped up, I think, in Democratic Party politics, frankly. And like, mm -hmm. there are a bunch of these mainstream civil rights groups that are really, really connected to the Democratic machine, and that's their access to power in the, in, in you know, in, in the Beltway. And so um, I think a lot of folks are just part, part of that whole business of, of, of education reform and testing and and just just that whole game um, uh, of of playing politics around it and 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 so that's why a lot of those groups, especially the big name, and, I, and I'll say mainstream civil rights groups are and they're not necessarily social justice groups to my mind, but they are mainstream civil rights groups um, end up backing um, a lot a lot of these accountability measures because they're playing a particular political game with with the Democrats and um, yeah. and that's where the game is. So yeah. Yeah. Can I add to that? Sure. Go ahead. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. You know, when when I was when United Opt Out was growing, it was an organization to really promote opting out of testing. We were really examining all of these civil rights groups. Right. I mean, and, I, and we did find that some had d deep connections to College Board. Right. Other companies, Pearson. Right. McGraw-Hill. So, of course. But there's also this argument that I hear a lot. Right. That like. How do we know the teachers are doing a good job if we don't have tests? Right? And I kind of yes. get that, right? Because if you think about how, you know, we integrated schools by firing all the black teachers and turning over our black children to this hostile white teaching force, right? Yeah, I can see a lot of parents saying, I don't know if that teacher's teaching my child. Like, how do I know they're not in there not doing anything because they don't care about my children, right? Yeah. And so I think that you need to pay attention to that argument, right? Yeah. But understand that testing doesn't make a teacher teach better, right? You need to deal with the fact that the teacher may be racist and not being doing a good job, but a test score doesn't change any of that, right? But I think there are some fears that parents have. How do I know my kids 
kid is doing a good job. I'm not an educator. How do yeah. I know they're learning what they're supposed to learn if I don't have these tests? And so I think we need to talk to those parents and say, look, there are ways to do that, right? There are different ways. And I, I know we're going to talk about that soon, right? But you don't need these tests. They're harmful and they're not helping your child. And they actually don't prove what your child can know or do. Because again, they're only measuring certain things that are not really that important as well, too. And I've come across some educators who I think like along what Wayne was saying, that respectability, right? They think about these tests as like they think about literacy and poll tests and how do black people deal with those? They pass them, right? But I'm again, that's different, right? <laughs> like getting a test that you can vote, a test that you know you can pass is very different than I think in this day and age when these tests are actually harming black and brown children, right? This narrative yeah. of achievement gap, that's another one that needs to go away, right? It's it's a racist idea, right? And so and it, and it, and it harms these children and follows them in so many ways, right? But it's yeah. so built into our political system. There's so much funding for these programs to help children close the achievement gap, right? And they take this very deficit view of, of children and learning and their families, right? And their cultures as deficit and toxic, right? So it, it just spurs so much more negative stuff, right? And yeah. then there's people like, you know, the few of us who do well, then we're put up on a shining platter and it's like, oh, you can be more like them, right? Or if you have a different group, right? Like uh, a group like they'll say African immigrants might come to this country and they might do well on the test and then they're pit against, right? African Americans, right? So it continues to like just run this de divisive way of thinking about learning and education and who deserves knowledge, right? Who deserves to be valued in the school and who doesn't, right? Based on this idea of test scores as well too. But really quickly on the learning loss, um, a colleague of mine, Brian Kramer um, at Southern Utah University, we did a study this summer on COVID, right? We surveyed about a thousand teachers to kind of find out what happened when schools closed and then the reopening. And then we interviewed about 23 of those teachers. And literally we asked one question that said, um, what did your school do to realign the curriculum, right? Everyone admitted that you stopped teaching in March. And if we remember, there was no new stuff being taught because that was the directive in most school districts. So you would think then, you would have to realign the curriculum. And they're like, nothing. I'm like, what do you mean nothing? And they're like, there was no grades being given. There were no exams being given. We didn't need to. The teacher was like, nah, 10th grade chemistry, we was done. We was done in March. Whatever you didn't learn, you're fine. You don't need it for the rest of your life. It wasn't like, oh my God, if these students don't learn this last quarter of chemistry, they're never going to be successful, right? In any of the disciplines, right? There was so, it just shows you how much learning loss is BS, right? Because you, yeah. you could Stop in March of one year, teach nothing new, and then start the next school year and be just fine. Right? Yeah. And as long as you don't have that test that's forcing you to make sure that students retain this or this or that. Right. And so I think it just really goes to show uh, we haven't published it yet. We're, we're, we're working on it. But right. That was just a across the board. Yeah. No, there was no push for that. So, you know, learning loss is made up by by corporations and people who want to profit off of the deficit view of black and brown children. Because they're not talking about the white rich kids who had pod teachers. Right. They're yeah. not ones being labeled learning loss. Right? Yeah. It's the black and brown kids who were trying to do virtual learning on terrible Wi-Fi and broken down devices. They're the ones that are getting this label. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the emperor is not wearing any clothes. Like we're suddenly beginning, like it's shedding. Everyone's finding out, like we didn't need all this stuff. <laughs> um, and I'm also thinking about, cause you also touched on it just a little bit with what is this stuff that we can create? What is this assessment that we can create that will be more authentic to how we know learning really happens? Right. And so I want us to talk a little bit about 
what those alternatives could be and what that looks like for, for you know, as you all, as a group can tell, talk a little bit more about that. Because I think for some of us who have been, we've, I think we've all been collectively socialized around this need to have standardized tests, right? So folks, there are folks who just can't envision a world without it, right? Right. There's a lot that's happening around with the abolition, around policing, right? There are people who cannot envision a world beyond it. But yet there are those of us who truly believe and are saying, oh, absolutely not. We can and we will, right? And similar to with this test, um, for those of us who've been socialized and said, like, this is, I've only known that I've only known this. This is all I've known as a teacher. This is all I know as a student, as a parent. I can't live, we can't live without it, we must have it. But we're saying, no, there actually is a new way of being. And there's another way of being. And I wonder what that is. What are y'all thinking? Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll jump in real quick. Um, I think you're right. There's people that have a really difficult time envisioning assessment beyond a corporation handing them a test. And we need to help them dream bigger. Like uh, one person I'll point to is Erica Sanzi, who wrote an essay called More Than a Score, Yes, Duh. And in this essay, she said that it's obvious that students are more than a test score, but, quote, that doesn't mean that their scores on tests aren't valuable to them, their parents and their schools. And it's baffling that highly intelligent or otherwise rational people would would choose to just have this bumper sticker slogan. And she says this is her her thinking. She said, um, our kids take swimming tests. They don't lose the essence of who they are uh, because they fail to float on their backs for 30 seconds or tread water for a minute. They just try again the next time. And it's probably safe to say that we all know people who have failed their first driver's license road test. They've all lived to tell about it. Most even laugh about it. And it certainly doesn't define who they are. It was a brief failure and life is full of them. Right. So she says basically like, you know, um, there we all, we take tests like that all throughout our lives. It's not a big deal. It's a way to check in and know about how we are. But here I think you see the total confusion of those people who I call the testocracy, because those are exactly the kind of exams that I, I think that we need. We need more swimming tests. We need more driving tests. We need less bubbling in uh, of standardized tests, right? So what we need is performance-based assessments where we can actually see what you can do and what you can do in collaboration with others as well. Because imagine if we said for swimming, okay, we're going to find out if you can swim. And so what we're going to do is have you sit down and take this test and you're going to bubble in about the correct different strokes and and things. And then we're going to throw you in the deep end and see what happens, right? How absurd is that? No, what we would want to do is actually be with you in the pool, right? And see what that's like. And those are performance-based assessments. So her argument <laughs> proves herself wrong, right? And there's some innovative schools around the country that do performance-based assessments. And I think one of the most interesting models is in New York City with the performance consortium of performance-based assessments. And if the testocracy is right, if the key to accountability for, especially for black and brown students is the use of standardized tests, then this network of schools 
would have the very worst outcomes for their students and especially for their students of color uh, because they have a waiver and they don't have to give the standardized tests and instead they use performance-based assessments. The problem for the testocracy is that these schools who are fully public, they're not charter, they don't receive uh, extra funding, but they have this difference. They, they use performance-based assessments and their outcomes for all their youth and particularly for their youth of color are so much higher. The graduation rates are higher. The college yeah. attendance rates are higher. The outcomes for English language learners are, are much better for black students. Uh, and I think it is, it's really important to, to see that when you, when you change the way we evaluate students, uh, it actually can benefit a lot of students who are currently labeled as as on the losing end of a quote achievement gap. And I just want to end by talking about my own classroom, because, the, you know, I when I started teaching my ethnic studies class, I had for the first time an integrated classroom because I had taught AP history with mostly white students and I had taught, quote, general ed classes with mostly black and brown students and when I taught this ethnic studies course, the counseling office did a really great job at integrating the class. And so I had all the populations at the school in one classroom. And I told the students from the beginning, you're not going to take a single Scantron multiple choice test anytime this, this year. And that's for a few reasons. Number one, if you bubble in A, I don't know if you knew that answer or if you just guessed it. And let's say, let's say A was uh, wrong. Uh, I don't know if you had really sophisticated thinking and you were debating between A and B and you knew one of them was right. And actually there was an interesting reason for bubbling in A that was traditionally the wrong answer. All that is hidden, right? And so these tests actually hide more than they reveal about your thought process. But also... What I found important in my ethnic studies class was having students identify problems in our society and then find collective solutions to those problems. And when you change the goal of the class, instead of to passing an uh, AP exam to identifying problems in our society and solving them, what you find out is that our black students are very advanced in understanding the problems in our society and talking about collective solutions to those. And, and our white students actually were behind and, and had to catch up in understanding the depths of institutional racism and other, other forms of oppression in our society that our black students were naming and, and talking about. And so it was incredible to see in my classroom a transformation of white students who realized that they had been told that they were smarter than everybody else for a long time. And in fact, they realized they had a lot to learn and that in many ways their black peers were in advance of them. And when we look at this learning loss narrative, let's take a look at the, la uh, at the last spring and the summer and the, the protests all across the country against police brutality and police terror that our black youth helped organize, right? That is identifying a problem in our society and finding collective solutions to it. Mm -hmm. And I would say not only 
uh, were they learning a lot through that? They became the nation's greatest teachers, and they taught us all about the power of collective struggle. And I think instead of them being behind, they're far in advance of a lot of our society in many ways. Yeah, and if I could jump in too, Kaikor, you brought up a you brought the point about about policing and abolitionists, you know, being in and abolitionism and and really, um, as we didn't we didn't talk about this uh, yet in this conversation, but you know, there's there's very much a way that uh, high stakes standardized testing and the whole accountability apparatus actually serves as a way to police black and brown bodies in schools, yeah. and even evidence that shows that. Um, that states that have high school exit exams actually see increases in their uh, in in the in the um, in the in the percentage of of student population that becomes incarcerated and engaged with um, with, with with the system, right? And so, so we see this direct link between um, tests and incarceration, and and part of that also. Um, uh, makes me want to like an answer, answer to your question about alternatives is to sort of say, okay, so what does it mean for us to dream big? Like, like I, you know, I have big questions about, can we think about assessment in an entirely different way that is, that is, is not about um, sort of, that is not connected to the carceral state that, that is not about, um, you know, retribution and retributive justice, but maybe, you know, can we have assessment that's, you know, that's that's based around restorative justice and that's re- that's based around transformative justice and assessments that can help heal students from, yeah. you know, from racial trauma and and the, the histories of colonization and and like like just how like how do we rethink what it means? Because I actually I do believe in assessment. I, that's the thing. You know, I'm yeah. like I am a stark, stark critic of high stakes standardized testing and have been for for years. But, I, you know, I want to see what my students are learning and thinking about and engaging with and what did they get from the curriculum and what did they get from from my class? You know, like yeah. those are important questions as educators that we all want to have answered. But but I want that to be done in a way that is is makes them feel whole and is healing to them and can help and help 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 build them into, you know, active people who are engaged with the world. And and so, you know, I think and I think we can have assessments that do that. Um, um, it just it's just going to take a whole different paradigm and just letting go and re- reimagining, you know, what that could be for for, you know, for, for our students. And I think we do see it. Jesse talked about a lot of performance assessments um, can and are really based on on that kind of that kind of model of, of students feeling really good about working through what they're thinking and what they learned and then showing that and sharing that and understanding that they're part of a community in the process. Um, like we can do it. We just you know, it's just not it's not efficient. It costs it costs more money and time. You can't use it to compare anybody to anybody else. It doesn't fit in the factory model of education, but it does fit in the in the human in the humane model of education uh, in yeah. terms of understanding human development and 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 letting folks sort of be who they're going to be in in education. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to say something because I saw a comment and someone was like, what about when they get to college, Jesse? <laughs> so as a college professor, right, Wayne and I can talk about this, but this is the, one of the biggest parts of all of this standardized testing and accountability in the name of college and career ready. 
Because look, I don't know a more non-ready for college group of people than students of today who are expecting college to be like test prep, right? Like I, I know so many of us don't like even teaching freshmen because they come in and they're so brainwashed from the K through 12 system that they they don't bring the skills they need for college, right? We want critical thinking. We want collaboration. We want students um, to be able to put forth an argument and, and, and have sources behind it, right? And they look at me like I'm crazy. They're just like, is it going to be in the test? What's the test like, right? Now, are there professors across the country who give out tests? Sure, right? But that's not the same thing. An assessment that a professor creates, even if it's multiple choice, is not the same thing as a standardized test, right? That's ranking and sorting students and comparing them against others, right? It's different in one college class. and But there are a lot of us who don't give those type of tests. I haven't given a multiple choice test since 2011, my first year teaching at a community college where I had no choice. They're like, you have to give a multiple choice test. And I'm like, what? Um, never again since then. I didn't have to, right? And I and I wouldn't, right? So there are other ways of being, but it just it doesn't prepare you to think critically. Anybody can prepare you to take a test, right? If I am gonna give a test and you have no experience with it, we can prepare you for that really easily. But if all you get is test preparation, that's a lot to undo for you to do well in a college environment. That's not based on that, right? Now you're at a more of a disadvantage. And I saw those students really struggle because they're like, well. All we ever had to do before was take notes and then answer a test. And now you're asking me to do all these other things and I don't know how to do them. Right. And that's a huge disservice that they were coming to the school unprepared for that. And again, like even somebody mentioned about teacher licensure exams. Right. I've seen so many great teachers, predominantly African-American teachers and Latinx teachers that cannot get into the profession because of licensure exams like Praxis, EdTPA and other things like that. And again, do I believe that there's knowledge that all teachers need to have? Yes. Do I think those two ways are the only way to measure them? No, right? As a principal or a hiring person, I should have a say. I should look at you holistically. Okay, here's your ITPA score. Maybe it's not that great, whatever. But here's your teaching portfolio. Here's your references from your mentor teachers. Here's all this, right? You should be able to make that determination on whether you want to hire somebody, even if their test scores are low, right? At my uh, law school, they didn't have a cutoff for the bar exam. I wouldn't have gotten into any other law school because my bar, my um, not the bar, the pre one, the LSAT was not very high, right? But this law school didn't really use that as a determining factor, right? They looked at a yeah. bunch of, they're like, oh, she's got a PhD. Why, who cares if her LSAT are so low, right? Let's get her in the program, right? Yeah. So I think when you have that ability, yes, maybe you have to take a test and maybe we have to look at the score, but it can't be the only determining factor, right? And there are too many areas where we're keeping people out because of a single test score. And I think that's the problem across the board, whether it's teachers coming into the field, students graduating high school, right? And other places, right? It should not be the only thing that matters. Yeah. Hey, just one, one, one real quick follow up on that, Denisha. I think that's a really important point. And and when we talk about what assessments could look like, I think that when we say performance based assessments, you know, I gave the example of a, a swim test or a driver's test. But I think one that that also people should be aware of is when you got your Ph.D. Right. And that <laughs> that's, you know, just a model that where many people are aware of, but don't think about how it could apply to K-12 education. And so in the Performance Assessment Consortium in New York, yeah, they do like that PhD model of defending your dissertation rather than doing the standardized test. So you work with a mentor and peers, you develop a thesis. If the research doesn't support your thesis, you revise 
your thesis, and then at the end of a, a period, you present on your your thesis, and you present to a panel of experts. And, and that way, when you're actually doing your performance-based assessment, instead of it being hours and hours of testing that's uh, taking away from learning, you're actually getting feedback from, from experts in the field. So if you were in a language arts class and wrote an essay and they bring in authors from New York City to hear your uh, to hear your thesis, you're getting feedback from experts in the field that are going to make you a better writer instead yeah. of time away from learning, right? Yeah. And innovative schools can do that kind of thesis Definitely. development uh, at K-12, and, yeah. and it can be really beneficial to, to, to promote critical thinking. They, yeah. they do do it with younger students, too. The Mission Hill School in Boston, right, that was part of Deb Meyer schools that she started in New York, right, the Central Park East, right? They also do that with young kids, right? Like, you have to prevent your learning to a panel of people. What do you know and how do you know it? And it's your job, right, to then demonstrate that. And there are parents and community members and teachers, and they're all listening, and they're asking you questions. And those yeah. kids come away feeling like they're dope experts, right? Because <laughs> there's yeah. nothing like having to defend what you're doing, right? There's nothing like having to like really talk to people about what you know and what you've learned and and put that out there. And and that's the kind of work, right? That really matters. It it can happen. And for those of you people who are watching, um, A Year at Mission Hill, there's a documentary that kind of looks at um, what they do at the Mission Hill School, which is just one example of how we can be a little bit more authentic. But I want to have a question here from our audience. Someone wants to know, Douglas Lee said, how do we liberate or move the racial communities and uh, a minority of Asians that firmly believe standardized testing has helped them towards success? So I was seeing this quite a bit. So anybody would like to tackle that? I, I mean, <clears throat> I mean, what, how I would answer that is to say, um, like, those folks aren't wrong that standardized testing has helped them to to move towards success because it is it is a system of success built within a particular paradigm, and it's the folks who don't fit into that paradigm who don't do well on the test. Right, the tests end up forming this function of of racial and class reproduction in this country. And so like the tests do work for some folks, right? Um, I think the main thing is this is actually to actually understand that it is operating with a particular paradigm that has implications for for whiteness and all sorts of other stuff, meritocracy, you know, um, the myth of the meritocracy in this country um, and really explode, you know, those presumptions and really and really sort of bring the fact that it is you know, operating within a particular way of thinking and approach to the world and understand that 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 doesn't work for everybody. In fact, it doesn't work for the masses of folks in, yeah. in this country. And that's why it needs to be gotten rid of, because um, it does work for some uh, it, like it does fit some folks. We've been talking about that, but it doesn't fit a whole bunch of other folks. And and because of that, it's just a reproducer and, and producer of inequality all over the place. And, and Wayne, uh, can you say a word about how they they get the test questions because I think getting some of the details about how these tests are constructed and and then the way that construction ends up reproducing the inequalities that we have was really interesting to me to to see the details of that. 
Yeah, well, the the work of, uh, for instance, Jay Rosner is really critical in that. Jay did a bunch of stuff around older SAT questions and how the uh, how those how the questions were selected for the SAT historically. And this came out of the affirmative action case in Michigan, actually, um, back in the day. Um, and Jay Jay um, got a chance to look at somehow he managed to get actual SAT data. They protect that. They keep it on lockdown. Um, just for this reason. Um, and, and, you know, there's a section of the SATs that typically, you know, is the real test. And then there's a section, but no one, you don't know it when you're taking it of, of questions that are, are being uh, tested for the tests, if, if, if you will. Um, and then they look at those results on the, you know, the sort of fake section or the, the temporary section, the test test section, um, and then decide which questions of those work for the real test. The thing, the trick is, is that historically the folks at, at ETS doing, doing the SAT, um, um, they, they, it, it, they create a reinforcing cycle so that they look for, okay, these, these people typically do well, answer these questions this way. And if the, if the questions that they're trying out, uh, if, if those same people answer those questions right, then those those test questions go into the real test. And so it ends up being this weird sort of cycle. Um, and, and Jay's work was incredible about sort of identifying the fact that there were actually some some um, possible SAT qu test questions were actually like black folks answered them more correctly than white folks and Latinx folks answer them at a higher rate than white folks. But those those questions were actually uh, deemed you know, inconsistent with the way the test functions and they were actually not included in, in future tests, right? Mm -hmm. um, which also raised an incredible, uh, an incredible um, uh, possibility to me is like, what if we, what if we just created an SAT that was all questions that black and brown folks outscored white folks on? Like that would totally like explode the whole thing. The other piece to say is also that the assessment of the assessment is super messy and is like, you know, the whole idea of like wanting to know how the sausage is made, right? That's that's like really what it is. When you go look at, for instance, a lot of these writing tests, um, uh, you know, end up being scored um, by, you know, people in office parks and cubicles who've received training to like give the tests. And the thing is, though, all these test companies, like they want to keep their contracts, right? They want to keep their contract with whatever district. And so they want to show that their tests are reliable and consistent to the districts. And so they want the scores to pretty much match the score. The scores for this year should pretty much match the scores from last year in order to show that they're they're working consistently. So then there's stories of management coming in and saying, hey, you all are giving her too many fours. You need to give some more threes. Right. Uh, so that we can make sure we're, we're being consistent. So there's all these things that go into not only yeah. just test question selection, but also uh, the assessment of the assessment, right? And and who's scoring these these more subjective uh, uh, parts of the test that really make it just really, I think, sort of implode the idea that these tests are anything, of, they measure anything objectively in terms of knowledge, for sure. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that, because I think what you're just describing here is exactly how the achievement gap is manufactured. Mm -hmm. um, using <laughs> these um, creative ways of uh, making sure that they're, it's normed in a way that's going to be in favor of one group over another, right? And thank you. Um, so questions, questions, questions. Okay, so a parent wants to know, what happens to parents if they choose not to let their children take standardized tests? 
That is a great question. Um, <laughs> so it depends on a couple of things, right? It depends on where you live and what kind of school your, your child goes to. Um, so here's the thing. You're not asking permission. It's a statement. You're just, you you need to go in there and say, my child's not taking the test and we're informing you so that you can be prepared for that. Right. But we always, they're like, they say they're not allowed, right? You're not asking permission because there's no law that mandates that students have to take these tests. And actually the Every Student Succeeds Act did get, you know, opting out as allowed, right, on the test. So every state does it differently, right? New York has a form parents can fill yeah. out at the beginning of the year. Other states are different. And some districts try to be real sneaky. I heard in Pennsylvania, when parents were forced to decide if they were going to do hybrid or, or in-person or the hybrid yeah. contracts and the remote contracts said that you must take all assessments offered. And yeah. so I say, you know what? You can turn on the computer and start the test and you can also walk away with not answering any questions, right? Yeah. Parents have to get real savvy about how they're going to do that. But it's important to let the school district know, depending on what you expect to do. Are you keeping your kid home or do you want to send them to school that day and they don't have to take the test? Because we've heard awful practices, something called fit and stare, where they expect your child to sit in the room and sit quietly and stare for the hours long that students are taking the test. That's like not even developmentally appropriate, right? That's they should be illegal, right? So you have to definitely say, no, you need to provide other accommodations. Not all parents have the privilege of keeping their kids home during the testing. So the school needs to create options. And I've heard now during COVID, they're saying that's not possible. We yeah. can't, we, you know, we can, you're going to have to keep the kid home. We can't create options. So I think that they should definitely push back on that. Charter schools, unfortunately, can kick a parent out when they say they don't want to. That's the difference when you put your kid in a charter school that's privately managed, right? Yeah. They can. Also, can do I think this also goes to Wayne's point about it being carceral too, as well. Yes. Like um, how we're seeing there's some people being penalized, right, in very subversive ways sometimes, right? I remember here in New Jersey that um, some students were told that they couldn't play sports if they didn't take the test when they yeah. um, when they were when we were pushing the opt out um, mm-hmm. um, for a minute or so. But I, I'm a parent that opts out my children. My yes. daughter is 13 years old who is never taking a standardized test a day in her life, right? And she's doing very well. She is right on a healthy child who loves her peers, who loves learning, but not so much school, the way it's structured, right? My son is nine, who's never taken a test. So I think in terms of children are going to be okay. I think, you know, but in terms of what schools are doing and districts are doing to penalize parents or penalize children, that's where we need to start thinking about, hmm, Okay, so there is there seems to be some carceral connection and penal system that's attached to the ways that school is structuring um, its use of standardized testing. (laughs) And I I just wanted to add on that um, I think opting out is is one of the most powerful ways to resist these tests for sure. And, And the opt out movement. exploded onto the scene in in 2013 and you know thousands of parents began doing that as a way to resist these tests deny the testing corporations their data um and and you know fight back and so i urge all parents listening to to join this movement and and be part of it but i think also students and educators have played an important role in resisting 
standardized testing as well. And at my high school in 2013, at Garfield High School, the faculty voted unanimously to refuse to give the MAP test that's administered in many school districts across the country. And, you know, the superintendent threatened the tested subject teachers with a 10-day suspension without pay for refusing to give this test. And, you know, we were reading Wayne's work on the racist history of these tests, and these tests were wasting our so much precious class time. Um, and we held a press conference, and we said we we let the whole country know we're not going to uh, administer these tests. Uh, but the solidarity that we saw from educators all over the country sending chocolates and roses to our school, but flooding the superintendent with letters uh, in in our support meant that by the end of the school year, not only was not a single educator reprimanded, but in fact, they removed the MAP test for Seattle's high schools altogether. And it was just a resounding victory for our movement. Uh, And, you know, students have been refusing to take these tests and organized walkouts over the past few years um, and marches and rallies around this as well. So I think that that all of us have a role that we can play in helping to resist the testocracy. Yeah. So we have two more questions that I want us to see if we can tackle before we wrap up at 630. So we have about nine minutes remaining. All right. So this is coming from Kenya Bradshaw. Can you can any of you speak to your thoughts on the NAEP, the National Assessment of Educational Progress? Um, I just know um, what I read about NAEP um, and Diane Ravage's books about testing. And so a lot of people argue that we can just use the, the data collected from NAEP, which is not given to every student across the country. It's randomized. A group of students take it different times of the year. Um, and it's a better use of the data if we really think that we need to evaluate students in this way. I don't think we need to evaluate students that way, period. But I get that we disagree in the society, right? But people say that 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 way that they're collecting that data is just as valuable and it provides all the evidence that we need, but it's just one company that does make, right? It's not, the other companies can't profit off of it. So they want, oh no, you need this, you need this, you need that. But if we have to keep standardized testing, I think a lot of people would say, let's just do NAEP, let's do a random sample and let's not make it into this high stakes fiasco that we're seeing right now. I don't know if Jesse or Wayne have any other thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, really... I would say, like, if you're going to do so, if you're going to do one, then do it. But it's not it's nothing like great about about NAEP per se. It's just a temperature check. You know, it's just a sample. But it's but here's the thing. Right. Like, you know, the honestly, the only real concrete reason why any test is given, whether it's the NAEP or any of our high stakes standardized tests is for comparison. So what happens is we give the NAEP and then what do they do? They turn around and say, oh, Okay, how's the U.S. doing compared to China or Japan or India or choose choose your country, right? Russia, right? Um, and so ultimately, even though maybe the NAEP might be better than you know um, the 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 raft of standardized high standardized tests that we give a lot of our students now might be an improvement, but fundamentally, it's it ends up still being a, a sort of a commitment to that paradigm of of, of comparison um, and doesn't nece- doesn't really necessarily tell us you know, where, where a lot of our students are at. Um, so, you know, this just triggered something. I just remembered that there was a teacher, um, I saw on Twitter who posted, 
um, that had been targeted by Smarter Balance um, because um, she had shared a test question that was from six years ago. It was actually a racist test question about indigenous people, They talk, the way they talked about them, but had targeted, reached out to her superintendent and administrators to make sure that that was removed, like she removed the test question, which, which also speaks to just even the ways that they're continuing to reproduce racist test questions, even though they know that this is problematic, they still see it as an opportunity to make money and they all target teachers. So one of the teachers asked and said, well, should teachers play a more active role in creating assessments? And I've heard some of these test companies will say, well, teachers create the test. So what are y'all? I, I can speak to a little bit of experience I had with Praxis. So that's a licensure exam for teachers. Um, and it's also delivered by ETF. And so I did work for them for a period because I thought maybe if I wrote some test questions, the exams would be better for my students, right? Don't bother selling your soul to the devil. Um, but what I learned was that they bring in teachers and they say th this test is informed by teachers. The only thing we informed was the study guide at the end of the day, that's what they used this for. And then all of the questions that I wrote for over in a year and a half, I learned were only on practice tests. They were not being used for the real test. So there are lots of ways to say teachers were involved without actually having teachers involved, right? And I, you know, Wayne said it earlier, if we're educators, we all believe in assessment. Assessment is part of the teaching and learning cycle. I don't know how to teach without assessing, right? It's just part of what we do. But this idea of testing, right? That's just one type of assessment that has too much control over it, right? Um, teachers do give assessments all the time. They have to, right? But they're not given the standardized assessment. So I wouldn't even trust a Pearson exam that was made by teachers because, yeah, I, I, I doubt that, that it's really what teachers want, right? And that's the, the interesting thing is like, if you just went and talked to teachers, then like you can come up with a way to help teachers get the information they need, but teachers aren't part of that process, like in determining what it is that we want to know students can do, right? And so that's why it's not really something that I think benefits um, or that teachers would say benefits them at all. Yeah, and, and I would add, like, you know, that's marketing, right? Because they're trying to they're trying to defend themselves against this critique about who's making these tests. But that's like that's only a piece of the issue because that's also I, I sometimes I think about it in terms of a geography of assessment and that there's a real there's an issue of distance involved and and it doesn't matter if there's some teacher somewhere across the country making a test question for you know my class over up here in in Seattle Washington um, because like again it's the point Jesse raised earlier it's it's about context right like they don't know these kids this context they don't they don't know if my curriculum, like for ethnic studies, right, your curriculum should be really generated out of local context um, and the community issues and the communities that the kids come from, right? There's this whole thing around locality and 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 like someone develop a teacher or a robot, you know, three thousand miles away can develop a test question that has so what? It doesn't have anything to do with what what we're doing over here and is measuring something that we may not be interested in measuring. It's that distance. Um, and the only reason why they do the distance is because they want to sort of make it look like the further away, the more objective it is. But really, that's that's just it's all just a false construction. So um, someone asked if we can recommend any readings or books or anything. And that I mean, we'll just go one around to see if there's any readings or books. I think, Jesse, I've heard you mentioned um, Unequal by Design by White Wayne. Um, I'll, I can also say that what's race got to do with it is where I actually read one of Wayne's pieces, and that's what that was um, 
edited by Brie Pacower and um, Edwin Mayorga. Um, so I don't know if anyone else has any that people can check in. Sure, I'll, I'll add to my recommendations. Um, well, if people are interested in this in the story of the resistance to standardized testing and and how we organized the map test boycott at Garfield High School, and and then the uprising of parents and students and teachers all across the country. The the book that I edited, More Than a Score, The New Uprising Against High Stakes Testing, um, tells that story. And there's also a book that, that Wayne uh, helped edit um, from Rethinking Schools called Pencils Down. And that book has some some good conversation about what authentic assessments could look like, what is performance-based assessment, as well as the some of the eugenics history of standardized testing and more. Thank you. Yeah, I, um, I definitely use more than a score in that freshman class I taught about opting out. And so the students really enjoyed that. Also, I mentioned Diane Ravage's book, Reign of Error, has a lot about not just testing, but the whole the whole corporate reform, neoliberal reform of education, right? So it connects the dots in there too. Um, and the book about um, the schools that Deb Meyer created that I mentioned, um, it's called These Schools Belong to Me and You by Deb Meyer and um, Emily Gasoy, right? And I think that's another one that shows what's possible when you really try and build these schools that she saw were for the private, rich, wealthy parents in Chicago. And she tried to bring to Harlem and to Boston and to these other communities as well. All right, folks. Well, this was great. This is a great conversation. I hope everyone has, you know, felt just as enriched as I had um, um, during this conversation with you all. Um, and I think I hope hopefully this will move people to start pushing back and hopefully re, you know, reinvigorate this pushback against standardized tests, just like we're seeing the abolition of police and policing and seeing the connections between testing, right? And it's racist history and going hand in hand and 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 creating um, uh, situations where students, all people don't have access to their full human selves. Um, and to Du Bois's point is that the fact that we're being pushed so further away from our civilization and what would it look like for us to be pulled into our full human selves. And, and, and so I, I want to thank you, Chrissy Mel Miles, who helped make this happen from NJA, Dana Blankert too, as well. Um, and we want to thank our ASL interpreters, Kristen and Travis. We appreciate you so much um, for making this accessible for everybody. So thank you. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.